I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. This is She Said, She Said. My guest today is Lauren Leader, the founder and CEO of All In Together, a nonpartisan nonprofit focused on training more women to engage in civics and politics, regardless of their political leanings. Lauren is an expert on diversity in the workplace, and she is also the author of Crossing the Thinnest Line, a book she wrote in 2016. Lauren, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. I'm so happy to have you. I'm happy to be here. It's taken us a little while to schedule it. It has. It has indeed. You're a busy woman. No. So I want you to talk about All In Together. And in the interest of disclosure, I was a founding board member of Lauren's organization. So I feel very strongly about her mission, but I want her to tell you Uh, our listeners, about what All In Together is. So All In Together is a nonpartisan women's political and civic education organization. We focus on equipping and empowering women, uh, no matter who they are, where they live, what they believe, to be active participants in our democracy. And since we founded in 2014, uh, we've trained over 10,000 women across America on the tools of leadership and political engagement. Uh, and we're very proud of the work we do and the amazing women we get to work with. And, you know, so happy to have had support from people like you, Laura. Yeah, absolutely. So so how unique is the notion of a women's organization focused on civic engagement? Well, so over the last number of years, particularly since the 2016 election, there have been a big proliferation of organizations working to help get women elected to public office. And that is a very worthy goal. And actually, a lot of those organizations existed even before we did. There's always been a lot of focus on trying to help women run for office or recruit women run for office. But what we found was that there were so many women, millions and millions of women across America, who didn't know the first thing about the political process, frankly, weren't that interested, um, didn't think that political participation was a way to make the country better, and couldn't even imagine or conceive of themselves Uh, getting involved in the political process, let alone thinking about running for office. So while we really, of course, want more women to run, our view was that in a democracy, there's lots of opportunity for citizens to be advocates, to engage, to participate, even if they never run. But what we knew or what we learned pretty quickly is that a lot of women, first of all, they just don't know how things work or what to do or sort of how to get started. And frankly, a lot of them are just not interested. So what we wanted to do was to show women Um, why political participation is valuable and why it matters, how you can do it without maybe upending your whole life or changing your job or making it your full-time occupation, Um, and to try to encourage women to see their own life experience as important and important enough that our elected officials should know about them and should understand what women's perspectives are. We are 51% of the population, we're the majority of the voting population, but there are a lot of issues that women care about that don't get a lot of attention um, or don't get enough attention. And part of that is because women often don't stand up to speak about them or to hold our elected officials accountable 
for our perspective. So that was our goal. One could argue that the population as a whole has become less educated about civic engagement generally. So not just women. Yeah. So how how do how are women impacted? Yeah. I would I think you would argue disproportionately when they don't understand how to engage from a civic standpoint, even though men aren't particularly right. any yeah. better Men educated. Are not, well, so it's a, you're exactly right. So so there's a civics crisis in America. I mean, most Americans really don't get a lot of civic education. They don't know how government works. They don't know some of the basics. 70% of Americans cannot name a single person who represents them in elected office. Um, something like 70% of Americans, if given a multiple choice test, can't identify uh, you know, clear you know, sort of basics in the Bill of Rights or in the First Amendment even. So we have a real problem with just Americans understanding how government works. But for women, that becomes a real disproportionate problem because women actually feel they want to know what they're talking about. And that lack of insight or lack of education around civics is much more likely to keep women away from the process than it is for men. Men don't really struggle with that. They're okay with not knowing. They have plenty of opinions, and I'm sorry to generalize about men, but it tends to be true. And I think women just want to feel, um, feel really well. They want to feel informed. And so a big part of what we've discovered is that by creating a safe space, a nonpartisan space uh, for women just to come and learn um, that that is transformative, that women walk away feeling um, newly able to take action on things that matter to them. And I think what's unique and special about us and that I'm very proud of is is that nonpartisanship, because, you know, my view and, and, you know, Laura, you and I are not always on we're not on the same political on the same political team I guess you could say but I really it's true true. (laughs) we are friends nevertheless friends very very good (laughs) friends nevertheless but you know I think what I felt really what bothered me about what I saw among women's organizations was a few things we talked about this years ago Mm -hmm. I was very concerned that so many of the women's organizations out there that were working on women's political engagement were partisan. These were liberal organizations. I mean, obviously, Emily's List being the biggest, but most of the other women's organizations out there had a litmus test. You know, where are you on choice? And you have to answer that question before you can even show up to a program. And I felt intuitively that that was alienating people, you know, not just women on the right, but frankly, even just younger women who, you know, weren't interested in that as the key subject for them. So so early on, I really wanted to create a space which said, like, you shouldn't have to pass a political litmus test to learn about our government and to learn how you have a voice. And the second thing was that, you know, I'm, I am an unabashed feminist. I believe in women's voices. And if you believe that, you can't say you only believe in that, you know, with women who agree with you. Right. And I will say that, the, you know, a lot of women on my side of the aisle, unfortunately, I think have in recent years, you know, sort of doubled down on, you know, we, we want women to participate, but really just the ones we agree with. Mm-hmm. And, and that we reject. And it means that we're maybe not as big and famous as some other women's organizations that have taken really partisan positions and have been really have sort of leveraged the current angry moment to their advantage. We haven't. So we've stayed a little smaller and maybe a little more under the radar. But I still think it's the right thing. How hard is that for you? I mean, given the fact that you are very passionate about your own politics, trying to navigate a nonpartisan or bipartisan organization, whichever label yeah. you want to adhere to, it's nonpartisan, really. 
Um, but how hard, it, how difficult is that to navigate in the current environment? I don't personally find it difficult because I find I am enriched uh, by connecting with and learning from women that have different opinions than mine. And, and I really feel that way. And, you know, it's part of the basis of our friendship. Right. But I really do feel that way. And I, and I also, I respect the diversity of who we are as women. And we're not all going to agree. And, and that is part of the diversity of our nation and, and, and who we are. So I personally don't struggle with it um, because I get so much out of it. I feel so enriched by what I learn from women on the other side. Um, but it is challenging in an environment where so much of the money and so much of the attention is going to you know highly partisan organizations. An example of that is Indivisible. You know, in many ways, the work that Indivisible does is quite similar to ours. A lot of the guidance that's in the Indivisible guide is really basic stuff about how Congress works and how to lobby and how to get active. But Indivisible has organized, you know, around this very highly partisan agenda. Like they are there to oppose President Trump. That is their mission. That that's not our mission, um, and you know when we have term limits, when we're in the next administration, whoever that might be, I don't want women, you know, in four years or eight years to suddenly say, oh well, there's nobody I'm angry at in the White House, so there's no reason for me to participate politically. I want them doing that their whole lives, and I worry very much about this temptation to always kind of go after the most partisan, divisive thing because it's a good way to raise money as a nonprofit. You know, if your mission ultimately is to make America stronger, I don't think that's the right answer. There's a place for that. And obviously, like, I support partisan organizations. So do you, you know. But And, and so do all. The, we're not asking women not to have partisan perspective. We all do. I'm not asking women to give up being a Democrat or Republican. I'm just saying, if we're going to get together and learn, if we're going to go make a difference, like, we have to be willing to do that even when we don't know don't yeah. agree. Let's talk about how All In Together works in practice. What yeah. are some of the things that you're doing to help increase women's civic engagement? Yeah, so we run training programs all over America. Um, and there's a couple of pieces of it. One is that we run programs for working women through our relationships with big companies, where we go into women's networks at you know places like P&G and Facebook and other companies and talk to them about leadership and about being leaders in their community. We do basic civics and then really practical learning, like how to go out and do something. What should you do? What can you do if you care about an issue and you want to make a difference? And then we have this magical community program that we run around the country where we work also with more grassroots organizations. So we'll partner with social services organizations that serve women around the country. So for instance, domestic violence shelters, advocacy organizations that are working with homeless women or you know other women that are vulnerable uh, in communities around America. They have lots of services, but they don't have the ability to help train those women then to take those challenging life experiences and go turn them into action. Mm -hmm. And that's been really special. What we found is that Women, no matter who they are, where they're from, or what they're dealing with in their lives, one thing that unites so many women in this country, one thing that unites so many women in this country is the desire to do good in the world, to make things better for other women, to take their own life experiences and work on behalf of, of others who might not uh, be able to speak for themselves. And what's been so beautiful is to see you know, women who've had really, you know, we've been working a lot with survivors of domestic violence over the last year, you know, women who've had, you know, profoundly difficult lives. And yet still, um, what they care about most is making sure that other women don't deal with what they did. And so when we 
show them ways to take that life experience and then go turn that into changing the laws to protect other women. Um, it's hugely empowering for them and, and they love it and they go out and do in really remarkable ways. So we feel really humbled that we get to be a part of that. It, it's really special and beautiful and really the great pleasure of my life. How did All In Together come about? Where did the idea come from? How did you yeah. bring it together in this particular way with this particular construct and approach? So as you know, I grew up here in Washington, D.C. And so I definitely had a lot of, I, I've always had politics on the brain. You know, it's a one industry town. You can't grow up in Washington and not pay attention to politics. It's the only thing anyone talks about. So it was always on my mind. And then I, I moved to New York in my 20s and had been there for many years working in business. And a few things happened. One is that I started to see um, this real surge of women, working women, who were asking some really tough questions about equality at work. And, you know, Lean In came out. And what were you doing at the time? I was working um, in diversity. I was working with big corporations on advancing women at work. And when Lean In came out, and I was speaking at a lot of women's events, but not about politics, about business. Mm -hmm. And when Lean In came out, you know, it sold 4 million copies. You Everywhere you went, women were talking about, you know, how do we get more power in the workplace? How do we break these last barriers? How do we, you know, become, how do we get funding as entrepreneurs, all of these things? But I didn't hear anyone talking about political power. And I thought that seemed strange to me. So I started doing some homework. And when you look around the world at the countries that have the most gender equity in terms of workplace equity or pay equity or other sort of measures of how women are doing, you really see that those are places where women are also really politically active. Mm -hmm. And this is back in 2014. And, you know, we did sort of know Hillary was going to run for president even back then. And so you had the sense that, like, there's something happening here. There is um, a whole generation of women, you know, we're out earning men in the share of college degrees, entering the workforce in huge numbers. And, like, more and more women were sort of looking around and going, like, wait a minute, I thought we're supposed to be a meritocracy. Like, what's happening here? Why are we not rising. I'm working just as hard. Like, why am I not succeeding at the same rate as men? So you could feel there was something happening in the country. But but this political piece was not even, no one was talking about it. It's hard to remember that from before 2016. But I mean, no one was talking about this. But we thought, there's something here. And, um, you know, we went out, we were very lucky. I, I asked a couple companies to help us, literally from a PowerPoint you were one of them, but um, you know we had this idea. What if we try to go train women on political leadership? Maybe it would just make them better leaders overall. And um, a couple companies wrote us checks, and um, you know here we are. So drawing both from your experience at All In Together and your previous experience in working with corporations, what are the most difficult levers to move still? There are still some obstacles. There's been a huge amount of progress made yeah. across a host of fronts. But what are the most difficult levers that remain? The positions of greatest power and influence remain, you know, overwhelmingly male-dominated in every field and discipline, everywhere. That speaks to the leadership of American companies. It speaks to the money that gets uh, invested in entrepreneurs, and it speaks to politics. Because even though, obviously, you know, we've just had this very successful, successful in the sense that many women were elected, obviously far fewer on the right than on the left. Um, but if we the are. The numbers went up on the Democratic side and went down. They went down on the Republican side. side. And, you know, it's, it, you know, it's funny. You were asking about the bipartisanship. Like, that is one of those areas where, like, 
you know, even as a lifelong Democrat, like I struggled, you know, I met women like Barbara Comstock Mm -hmm. and Mimi Walters and, you know, some of these women Republicans who I I really respect and admire Mm -hmm. and think they've done a great job. I don't agree with them on a lot of things, but you know, I, these are women who I, I would have liked to have seen stay in office because I believe in a two-party system and I, I'd like to see women on both sides. Um, but it was tough because they, they both, you know, a, a lot of the Republican women got beaten by Democrats, Democratic women who, who went after them. And, you know, so it's that's one of those places where I always feel torn because I do want to see uh, strong women on both sides. But obviously I'm a Democrat. I want to see us have the majority. But then it kind of kills me to see you know, great women like Barbara Comstock and others. And and Barbara is a great example because she is such a, she was someone who, you know, was moderate in many ways and very bipartisan and, and also like so invested in women uh, and did a lot to try to encourage other women to participate. So, you know, I'm sure she'll continue on to do great things even outside of Congress. But sure um, So look, I think the, the places of greatest power are the places that are hardest to change. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, you know, whether that's a corporate board or whether that's the United States Congress, there are a limited number of seats. And in order for women to rise, men have to step away. And that is just the reality. You know, you're not going to have 50 board seats on a public corporation. You're not. I will say that I'm tremendously encouraged by the progress that I see in corporate America. I just got an email, the 30% Club, which is a consortium of I think about 70 companies, public companies that have committed to greater gender diversity on their boards is are hitting 30%. Um, three years in, they are, there will be 30% women on the boards of the companies that are collectively in the 30% club. It's an amazing transformation. So I, I think there's real signs of progress, but this is a long road. Let's talk about other measures of success and other sort of data points that you use to encourage women to engage one is op-ed submissions. And yeah. I've always found this number mm. interesting, and this is something that you guys publicize in your research. Talk about what those numbers look like. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, op-eds feel like, and most people, actually, sometimes when I say op-ed in rooms where I'm training, people don't know what that is. So, you know, op-eds are opinion pieces that Letters are published. Letter to the editor and opinion pieces that are published either online or in newspapers. The overwhelming majority of the submissions, so they're hard to get published, but the overwhelming majority of the submissions to the tune of like 80 plus percent are submitted by men. Men have a lot of opinions, and they're not afraid to send them into newspapers. <laughs> the thing about why that matters, because you could say, oh, well, who cares? Well, it turns out that there's there's data that shows that like elected officials, members of Congress, when they're undecided about an issue, they often look to op-eds. Uh, they often look to opinion pieces to form their own opinion. And so it's just one of those examples where you have people in positions of power whose perspectives are being informed by a narrow segment of society. And that is one where you could certainly argue it's hard to get them published, but like women aren't even really trying. Mm -hmm. You know, we need more women to step up and tell their stories and to offer their perspective and to tell people what they think. Uh, They certainly have opinions. I think it's just that we don't always think about um, stepping forward to share them. So so I think that's one. Um, Another one that we really look at is really is like, for instance, a good one for this recent cycle was volunteering on a campaign. In this cycle on the Democratic side, there was definitely a huge surge. And we don't know the numbers yet. We're checking. But 
um, huge surge in the volunteerism of women on campaigns, which actually really makes a huge difference. You know, people win by the numbers of doors that get knocked on Mm -hmm. and the numbers of doors get knocked on by the numbers of volunteers who show up. So like, that's a great example of like, even if you're never going to run for office, you know, make spending an hour or 30 minutes making phone calls on behalf of somebody that you believe in. These are important measures of civic participation and they, they matter in terms of, you know, women's um, perspectives and women's views um, being heard in the larger scale. And we want more women to see their own life experience as qualifications. We're all qualified to talk about something that we know personally. And I think a lot of women, count, they don't think of themselves that way. It's like the biggest revelation when we say to women, you know, the fact that you're a wife, mother, daughter, sister, aunt, cousin, these are all qualifications for having something to say about things that are affecting your life or that are going on in the country today. So say them. And the more you say them, the more our political process will reflect their opinions. So we talk a lot about confidence on yeah. the podcast. Good topic. How much of this, <laughs> <laughs> all of this and the trainings, when you think about getting women more inclined to speaking up, sort of what's the corollary to confidence? Yeah, well, clearly feeling that you know what you're talking about does seem to be a really big factor for women. Like we want to be prepared Laura knows because she always comes with notes. Definitely. We, I always tease her about it. She's 100%. Always very, Laura is always exceptionally prepared. It's one thing I know about her. I am rarely prepared. Um, so we have different personalities on that. Yeah, I just like fly by, you know, like, it'll be fine. I'll figure it out. Anyway. But I'm more typically female. You apparently. are. You are in that way. You are that way. Um, so, so, yeah, look, we know that that's true, that women really do want to feel that they know, that they, they feel prepared. And part of what instills women's confidence is that sense of being well-informed. And and that is that seems to be true across the board. It's why women are such great students. You know, they're outperforming men on college campuses to pretty amazing degrees. Um, we work really hard at, at, you know, being prepared. So I think that seems to be it. And the other thing is, is a sense of safety and community of being with other women. You just can't overstate that. You know, the, the ability to be in a room full of other women who, you know, you feel less judged, you're able to ask questions that you might be embarrassed to ask if there were men in the room, you know, that kind of sisterhood support goes a really long way. And seeing other women who've done something that you are thinking about doing or afraid to do. I mean, that to me is the thing that I'm actually most excited about after this election cycle. You know, the numbers didn't change that much. We're still only at, you know, 25, 24% women in Congress. But even those small numbers, like the kinds of women who've won, what I love about it is all these women who like no one asked them to do it. And they they just decided that they were going to go out and do it. And they didn't really care whether or not somebody in the part, you know, the Democratic Party in Illinois said, you know, you're our person. The power of that to inspire other women that you don't need anyone's permission to have an opinion, to have a passion for service, to want to make things better is enormous. And I do think that having these, you know, it started with your lovely friend, Elise Stefanak, who was previously the youngest woman in Congress. And then now, you know, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, whatever you think of their politics, like it's kind of amazing to see these people 
in offices that we've just never seen women like this before and we we need to see it to feel that we can be it even if it's a woman from another party yeah i mean i i think that's true i mean i look i as i said before like we do need to see more women elected on the on the republican side there were a lot more women um, over the last decade or so, and we've talked about this, you know, who've been elected into local offices. You know, I think Republicans have done a great job of getting women onto school boards and, you know, local elected offices at the national level, less so. But um, yeah, like we need to see the possibility that we, we need to be able to imagine ourselves in these positions. And when there aren't any, you know, it just takes an extra level of courage to think that you can do something and kind of some audacity to think that you can do something no one else has ever done. Yeah. So. Speaking of audacity, okay, starting a nonprofit from scratch yeah. with a big idea <laughs> is not for the faint of heart, I would yeah. say, right? So what do you wish you had known that you know now yeah. when you started All In Together? That's such a great question. I guess one of the things that I've come to learn is, to your point about confidence, the power of confidence, actually, that people are enormously persuaded by passion and purpose but that it has to be backed up with like real work and infrastructure I think I've definitely had to learn that like even given that you've got to really run things well and they have to be super professional and to inspire the confidence of people who you need support from it took us a while to kind of figure out some of the infrastructure stuff and just like standing up an organization that's credible and that, you know, reported our financials in a way that my funders would want and, uh, you know, had the board governance and that kind of thing. That that was harder for me because I'd never done it before. I had no idea what I was doing. It took me a while to figure that out. So I wish I, I do wish I had asked for more guidance on that stuff earlier on. It's, it's all come out to work very well in the end, but I, you know, it was, there were definitely bumps along the way. And then one of the lessons that I learned just actually much more recently, I had this amazing board meeting a few months ago. I was talking about our vision for the future and that we really want to grow. And I said to the board in the room, you know, I don't know if I can do this. Um, I'm not sure I'm the right person to get us to this next level. I, I just don't think I, I, may don't, I maybe don't have the qualifications for this next phase and maybe you need someone else. Now, I thought that I was being... Uh, very honest and forthcoming and self-reflective. And I got huge blowback from a bunch of my board members who were so turned off by the fact that I had said that. And because I gave my power away in being honest, which I think, you know, we like to be as women, we like to be really authentic. I sort of, I undermined my own, I undermined their confidence in me you know, they, they actually didn't want to hear that from me. I've thought so much about this because it was honest and I care about the organization. I wanted to succeed. But I also realized in retrospect a couple of things. One is that I, I had been selling myself short because, you know, if I really put my mind to it, like I absolutely can do what I, you know, can help us get to this next level. I, I was sort of copping out. Um, but also that like when you're in a position of leadership, you know, you, you need to inspire the confidence of others, you know, and it wasn't the right time or place to expose my vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, as honest as it was. It, it's such an interesting lesson. I talk, I've talked to so many women about this, right, that we, 
you know, that push pull of like, we want to be honest and authentic. And vulnerable. You and vulnerable. You want to show that vulnerability because that's part of your authenticity. But you know what? But not in the board meeting. But you can't perhaps. do it in the board meeting. <laughs> no, I mean, I yeah. mean, joke, but like, it's really true. And like, I've had experiences like that, even like in job interviews too, where like, you know, and now I'm so attuned to it because like in job interviews where you're like, you know, you want to be honest, they ask you, well, you know, what makes you qualified for this job? And you want to be honest, you know, I've got like 90% of this, but these are the 10% that are going to be, uh, that are going to be a stretch for me. No, you can't say that in your interview because the men never say that, you know, and for whatever reason, like our expectations of people are that if they're going to lead, they got to have it all under control. It's, it's a really interesting dynamic for women leaders. So what would have been, I mean, to use it as a learning, learning. and teaching opportunity. Yeah, I'm really laying it what? out there to the, <laughs> to okay. the she said, okay. she said listeners. No, I think it's great. Where would have been the better place to have that Well, I think, first of all, I could have said, look, here are the things that I think we as an organization are going to need support in doing better or that I need your support in, in doing better, as opposed to putting it in the put framing it is I can't do this or I don't know how you know it's a very that's a very different it's very different one is undermines your personal power the other one enhances your personal power right you're asking for help but in a way that is empowered sure so so that's one and then I think you know to have side conversations with one or two key people to say you know here is what I'm thinking about what is the right way to think about this going forward? I've really come around because now I've also come to realize that I haven't tried hard enough. And what do you mean? Well, I think that so I'm really this year for me is all about persistence that I'm realizing that, you know, hitting roadblocks doesn't mean you can't do it. And it doesn't mean you're not qualified. It just may mean you have to keep working at it. And that, that has been true for me on a lot of things this year, stuff that's taken me years. I came to realize it takes years and years and years of hard work sometimes and just a relentless persistence. And, you know, even after five years, sometimes that's not enough time to give it up. And I think that I was so quick to, you know, take the challenges of, you know, growing this organization. You know, my goal right now is to get us from, you know, a million to like three or four million in the next few years. That's a huge leap. Mm-hmm. I've never done it before. I, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to do it. But like, I was so quick to just say, oh, I, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. Somebody else should do that. Well, you know, why not? Like, I figured out this much. Like, am I just, maybe I'm just giving up too quick. And so I'm really... I'm really glad that the board pushed me in that way. I, I'm enormously grateful for it because I don't think I would have seen it. And now, you know, I might not be successful, I'm, but I'm going to try really damn hard. And I'm going to keep trying um, until someone tells me to stop. But um, yeah, it was a remarkable life lesson for me about power, about leadership, about persistence, about uh, commitment, about, ins- you know, inspiring followership from others. It, it was really... I'll look back on it, I think, for years. So you talk you talk about persistence, right? There's not a person who knows you that would say you're not persistent. Mm-hmm. You're very doggedly determined. But where does the fuel for that persistence come fear from? Fear of failure. Pretty quick answer. <laughs> the fear of failure and humiliation is a constant driver. No, I mean, really, like I have a, I have a kind of, the one thing I am afraid of is failure. And it's a pretty intense fear. I, I just... It, and it, it's not, I don't know where it comes from. It's just this sense of like, I should be able to do more. I, I feel lucky in a way because I have been surrounded most of my life 
uh, by very high achieving people. Uh, it's part of growing up in a city like Washington, which is where high achieving people come to come to be high <laughs> achieving. Yes. Yeah. And um, so everybody in my life has always been, you know, type A and I've had a lot of exposure to people that, you know, are well known or have been very successful in their careers. So I don't know. I, I just always it's the sort of constant thing of like, you know, I, I could do more mm-hmm. there. There's always somebody out there who's you know, achieved something more meaningful or more powerful. And it, it's not a quest for power or money per se. It's really just this sort of sense of um, breaking through my own limitations mm-hmm. and seeing how much I can prove to myself uh, that I could that I could do more. This is not the first time that the idea or the concept of fear of failure has been yeah. a big motivator for folks who come on this podcast. So it's a, it's a concept that we're very familiar with, but for an awful lot of people, Fear of failure can also cut the other, the way, other way, where you're less inclined to, to take, risk. take a risk yeah. because you're afraid you're going to fail, so why bother taking the risk? So why is it, how how is it motivating for you versus something yeah. that stops you from moving forward? I, I have asked myself this question for years. Isn't it and, interesting? Yeah, and um, my mother is the opposite. Um, my mother is extremely risk averse and very careful about everything. She plans everything, and she's just. But is that total opposite? Or is that I don't personality? Know. No, it's because my, my grandmother was the same way. Um, I think maybe it's personality. There's something about me from a young age that I always liked risk. Um, I, I probably did some stupid things in high school because of that, but like I liked the risk, and I I really liked. I've always liked the rush that comes from taking the risk and then it working out. As I've gotten older, I've definitely had to deal with that it doesn't feel so great when it doesn't. And I've had to kind of dial it back on my risk taking. But I'm, I am preternaturally drawn to uh, high risk endeavors. And I think, again, I think it's like the, there's something about the challenge of having to make it through these risky things that that I just I'm sort of addicted to what happens when it doesn't work out yeah what's your process Mm -hmm. for recovery for sort of dealing with it pivoting well and it definitely has not more than once um I will allow myself a very deep wallow for like 48 hours um which may include not getting dressed not showering watching the Kardashians on a constant loop and and or going to a movie. So I will definitely allow myself a massive, overly indulgent pity party. And I've had more than a few of those. <laughs> and then I am done. And but then you put the wheels back on, right? That's just sort I know. of that's the wallowing well, so look, part. One but thing, how do you like how do you pivot? So I'll tell you one thing that I Once credit. The, card, the episode of yeah, the Kardashians yeah, yeah. ends, you Again, it's the fear of failure thing. Like I'm so afraid that, that I'm just gonna get stuck in the wallow. I have to get up and go do something. And it's the doing something that makes me feel so much better. Like any action that I take to try to move the ball forward makes me feel better. And so, you know, so I get really obsessed with like just putting one foot in front of the other. But but I will say one thing I, I have to say I do think I wasn't always able to do this. Um, I started meditating uh, when I was 22 years old, and um, that was really before meditation became. Yeah, it was not cool. I couldn't tell anyone I was doing it. People thought it was so weird. They really did. Like I couldn't even tell my parents. They thought it was so weird. Uh, Yoga and meditation, but um, meditation particularly. 
I discovered meditation when I was 22 and it was so completely life altering. I, I don't think I knew at the time how life altering it would be, but when I look back on it now, um, it is absolutely the turning point in my life after which I was capable of taking adversity and turning it into something that was motivating instead of it being something that totally took the wheels off the bus. Because when I was young, I mean, as a teenager, the adversity took the wheels off the bus just over and over again. But thank God, you know, for me, um, meditation was like a life raft and somehow gave me the, helped me find inner resources to turn around, you know, really challenging setbacks. And, and I have had many over the last decade, you know, really tough stuff. Um, has enabled me somehow to have this, I don't know, I, I don't even credit myself with it. It's just there, some ability to turn it around. What does your meditation practice look like? It's not every single day. I don't meditate every day. I try, but I, I don't always have time. Um, you know, it really is about separating my emotions and my thoughts from who I am as a person. In other words, the, the best example I can give is it's like a ticker tape. I've learned to see my feelings and my thoughts like a ticker tape going across the screen. I'm not in it. I'm not part of the ticker tape. I'm just watching it. And that learning to separate who you are as a person, who the, the sort of super I from what's happening in my life is enormously powerful. And every meditation tradition, even like, you know, from Christianity to Islam, every meditation tradition is the same thing. It is this idea that there is something that is essentially you that has nothing to do with being Lauren or Laura, nothing to do with whether I'm blonde or brunette, nothing to do with whether I have blue eyes or green eyes, and something to do with this inner power that is unshakable. And so for me, those years of meditation of just touching that, even just seeing that, even just separating out the noise in my life from who I really am, so powerful. You are a single mother of two beautiful girls. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot on your plate. When you think about how you define success, mm -hmm. one thing that I think is interesting is how do you hope that Stella and Serena mm -hmm will think about what you've done and where you spent your time. Yeah. So I absolutely want them to see an example of someone who's trying to make the world better and who cares about something other than themselves. Like that is so important to me. I want them to see what it means to serve in the world. And I think Stella is pretty tuned into that already. She's really much more interested in politics probably than the average nine-year-old. <laughs> I uh, wonder why. Yeah, gee, I wonder why. <laughs> um, she, she definitely is getting constant civic lessons at our house. I want my kids to at least feel that I am there for them, but like really there for them, not just like physically there for them. And that I think is the hardest thing as a parent, like just even trying to like turn off my life to like listen to Stella talk to me about her horseback riding lesson or, you know, it's very hard to be present for our kids. It's so hard, whether you're physically present or, you know, not the hours even, just like making it quality time is the hardest thing. So um, I'm trying. It's the hardest it's job. It's the hardest job. The hardest it's job. the hardest job. I mean, hands down. But um, yeah, I mean, I have two girls. And you didn't mention that, of course, my, my daughters are also adopted. And I'm white. And my kids are African-American. And, you know, I want them. I really care a lot about them feeling like um, they're who they are is valued and 
even though they're they look different from me and they have different backgrounds um it's not always easy to walk into a room when everybody immediately knows that you look nothing you look nothing like your mom why you know those are challenging things for my kids on a day-to-day basis how do you deal with that you know, we've been really honest about the whole thing from the beginning and, you know, particularly about adoption. It's always been part of our conversation. You know, I try really hard to um, to find books with black characters and watch movies that have, you know, I'm much more attuned to these things. And actually, it's really funny because now so is my older daughter, Stella, who will like watch a show and she'll be like, Mama, there were no black people on that show. She's like, that's how Hollywood is. <laughs> yes, Stella, that is how Hollywood is. So I apparently I'm getting through. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think it's every day. It's just it's it's respect and, you know, trying to listen to them and um, create opportunities for them to feel as understood and loved as possible. Yeah. How much did having children of a different race inspire the book that you wrote, Crossing the Thinnest Line, which yeah. talks about all different types of diversity? <laughs> Uh, but certainly racial diversity. How how much were they an inspiration for you? I mean, huge. Obviously, like, look, I, you know, I, I, I'm very conscious of the responsibility of being a white mother of black kids. And, you know, it's hard enough being a minority in this country, let alone being a minority in your family. And I, I do care a lot about that. And I, I want to make the world better. I mean, like little things. I mean, obviously, the book for me was was a very important it's part. I mean, it's part of my life's work anyway, which is my commitment to diversity and to helping people understand that better. But, like, how to make sure that the black residents of my town, you know, aren't afraid to drive out of their driveway for fear they're going to get pulled over, you know. And and those are real issues um, that I care about a lot. Yeah, Lauren, we ask every guest on the podcast to leave us with a single piece of advice or a life hack. It can be a mantra, something that you tell yourself that you live by it could be something you wish you had known when you were just starting out what is yours my mantra is if not i who if not now when i can't solve all the problems of the world nor will i but i do ask myself that a lot what can i do how can i try to make something better i do think that the world would be a better place if more of us did that more often. Um, I think that inspires the best, the best of who we are. Yeah. Lauren, Thanks. thank you, love. Thanks, really appreciate Lauren. it. Thank you. To learn more about Lauren and All In Together, you can visit our show notes on the website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you're enjoying She Said, She Said, which we hope that you are, leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. As always, thanks so much for listening.